When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It was Tottenham on Spoon. Welcome to a very special Hometown Glory. I'm Charlie and I am delighted to welcome a man who made 611 appearances across 16 years for Spurs, which is second on our all-time list. He won the UEFA Cup in 1984 and as captain lifted the FA Cup on my eighth birthday making it still very much the best birthday of my life. Um, And today he is still and will always be a beloved club ambassador. He is, of course, Gary Mabbott. And Gary, we are so, so thrilled to have you with us this evening. Thank you for joining us. How are you? Yes, I'm very well, thank you. And uh, thank you for having you on the show. It's very good. Thank you. It's our pleasure. Um, Now, we're talking on quite a momentous day for Tottenham Hotspur for several reasons. Um, I feel like it would be um, it would be poor form of me not to get, um, and we're going to dive into Antonio Conte a little bit more in detail later on. But how 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 are you feeling about our new manager? What's what's your what was your initial reaction? Well, I've got to say it's been an incredible week. Um, I mean, going into the game against Manchester United, it was United who were at rock bottom. Uh, everyone was saying whoever sort of uh, you know Spurs had won that game, then it could well have been. Uh, you know, Solskjaer, who'd been uh, the manager that had been sacked, and I read an article in the Guardian last week that was saying that uh, Antonio Conte was ready to take over. <laughs> so, you know, that, that was one week ago. I mean, how, what a difference a week can make. Uh, of course, uh, you know, the game took place, uh, United won, and of course, Nuno was, uh, was sacked. And, uh, and today, I mean, what's delighted me is that yeah, we haven't got a long spell of having to wait to find out who the next manager is. It was all done very, very quickly. Antonio's in charge. And uh, I have to say that uh, when he was at Chelsea, I loved him. I loved his manic attitude on the side of the pitch. I loved the way that he got his teams to play. Um, you know, he's a serial winner. 
Yeah, and of course, uh, at the end of last season, he uh, won the title for Milan. I think the first time in you know in a, a decade for them, whatever. So, uh, an incredible achievement last year. Um, and of course, uh, he's now the Spurs' new manager. And so, we've got a squad of players at Spurs who are more than capable of getting a place in the top four. Um, but we need to build confidence, get the belief back in themselves. And uh, Conte seems to be the sort of character that can do that. You've been a player, obviously, where big personalities have arrived at a club as, as manager. How how will the players be feeling with a manager of that, you know, that reputation, that standing in the game? I mean, how how, how will it have been at Hotspur Way today, do you think? I've got to be honest and say, I mean, obviously, I was at the club for 16 years and I was lucky enough to be captain for 11 years, but I never had sort of a, I don't think, a, you know, two brand new managers in the space of like four months. Um it's been quite remarkable, really, uh, for the players to adjust. I mean, every time a new manager comes in, any player that's not actually been sort of first choice has got a chance to prove to the new manager uh, that he's the one they should be picking. And then suddenly, four months down the road, they all got to start again. And, uh, you know, they've all got the same thing again. So it's a, it's a quite an unusual situation. Um, but looking at, I mean, you know, Nuno's a gentleman. He, he, he's a lovely guy, a sort of chap that you want to do well. But I think the remit coming in was to, you know, bring back the DNA of Spurs, the attacking flair, the football. And unfortunately, he hasn't been able to do that. And, you know, the board, having seen what's been going on, have reacted quickly. Uh, they have to do what's best in the interest of the Tottenham Football Club. And as I say, the fact that it's been done uh, within a few days, uh, to me, is... Um, the amazing thing about it is that there's none of that uh, in between time. You know, we all know where the players will all know where they stand. And you can be sure they probably already met uh, Antonio this afternoon and then back in training tomorrow for the game on Thursday. So, you know, it's uh, I think players get used to managers coming and going. But it's been a particularly unusual week this week. It was, you're right. It's such a relief that we didn't, we don't have to do another repeat of that torturous summer, which I mean, I'm, you know, you're you're a Spurs man. It was it was stressful, right? It was really stressful. Yeah, and uh, I've got a lot of friends who are Arsenal supporters, and uh, you know, they kept saying, uh, "Who's going to be the last manager standing to take the job?" And I was taking such flack over the summertime, but uh, but no, I mean, you know, Antonio was probably the first choice uh, last summer. It didn't happen then for whatever reason. It's happened now, so. Uh, yes, uh, we're looking forward to him taking uh, taking the responsibility and hopefully uh, moving the club forward. Um, something else that brought a smile to an awful lot of Spurs faces was the work that you did, Gary, during the pandemic. Um, I just wanted to talk to you, really, and also say say thank you on behalf of Spurs fans and the Tottenham Hotspur community. The, the incredible thing you did last year and, and this year too. Um, for those that don't know, Gary made over two... two Two and a half thousand calls to Spurs fans who are in the vulnerable bracket to, to live spirits. Um, that equates to around 625 hours on the phone. Um, just extraordinary. Gary, how, how did that come about? Was it your idea? Was it brought to you? Uh, well, when uh, the lockdowns first started, um, everyone was obviously not able to work at the club. And uh, we came up with an idea as how we could basically keep in touch with our the supporters in the vulnerable age group. Um, that's the over 70s basically and um, we said look people will have birthdays special occasions anniversaries and so why not let's just call them on those occasions you know I can have a chat to them 
Well, the main idea being that if if you talk to somebody for you know, 10, 15 minutes, you could get an idea if they're in a, a good or a bad place. We have, unfortunately, a number of supporters who lost partners to COVID, a number living on their own. Um, and you know, it was possible that we could get assistance to them uh, if necessary. So that was how it started. And uh, in fact, uh, your numbers are slightly out. Because obviously, I'm, what's happened is the pandemic finished and then everyone seemed to think in the last couple of months that it's all over now. Hey, back to normal. But there are a lot of people out there who are still in their 80s and 90s living on their own. And whereas at the start of the pandemic, there was a fantastic coming together of all the neighbourhoods, all the communities to help everybody within that community. And suddenly it's like, well, it's all over now. It's okay. It's not okay. There are a lot of people out there still that need their medicines picked up for them, need their food picked up for them. And so we've carried on doing the calls. And uh, in fact, uh, I made my, if I've got if I down here, my 4,131st call today. So there you go. Um, wow. So we're, um, still, we're still doing the calls. Uh, I've been doing it. I haven't missed a day since uh, in the last 18 months. So Christmas Day, New Year's Day, we did it. I spend you know, two or three hours a day on the phone to our supporters. And it's been great because people say, Gary, that must be so boring. You know, 4,000 <laughs> 4, calls, you know, just talking about football. It's not. Every single person I've spoken to has their own memories of Spurs, their own first game they went to, their favourite player, their favourite game, their worst game. And you can, believe, can you imagine, during these last 18 months, we've been top of the table. We've been like, there's been turmoil going on. All the things that went on through the Super League. I mean, you imagine all of the elderly supporters. And of course, I'm taking the calls and uh, obviously getting all the good, all the bad. So there's been a lot of interesting phone calls. There was one lady whose family uh, got in touch with who was 106, been a Spurs fan for over 100 years. There's one gentleman a couple of weeks ago who was 100. It was telling me about the Spurs forward line in 1932. So the actual love and the passion for the club in these people who've been supporting the club for, you know, 60, 70, 80 years is quite incredible. That's absolutely extraordinary. 100 years supporting Tottenham. I feel like I'm not sure if that's a good or a bad thing. That's probably but it's been quite a roller coaster ride. It's certainly an extraordinary <laughs> thing. And the, the work you've done is extraordinary too, Gary. And like I said, on behalf of the whole Spurs family, we can't thank you enough for representing us in such a wonderful way. It's a real, it's we're, we're entirely privileged to, to have you do that sort of thing thank for you. us. So thank you. It's time to move on. It's time to talk and launch into our famous, uh, I say famous, this is literally the first time we've done it because you're our first star guest. Our famous hometown glories. It will be seven. the famous one. Okay, go on. It'll be, it'll be absolutely. I mean, I don't know how we're going to top this one, but it will definitely be famous. Um, so you know all about the famous five, of course, Gary, but these are questions, seven questions that we feel help define us as Spurs fans um, and Spurs heroes, of course, uh, as we sort of dive into the lived experience of what being Tottenham Hotspur is all about. Question one, your Spurs origin story. So in your instance, Gary, t- talk to us a little bit about, take us back to August 1982. Um, you're at Bristol Rovers. You get the call. How, how did it all sort of go down back then? Well, my contract was up at Bristol Rovers and um, freedom of contract was just coming into football. But then it was very different. You could write to whoever you wanted to write to saying, look, this is my name. 
This is what I've achieved, etc., etc. So I wrote to all the first division clubs. I was playing for Bristol Rovers in the third division. So I wrote to all the clubs and then got a couple of replies back. And then, to be fair, I was a bit disappointed because I only had like you know, two or three replies. Uh, and then I got a phone call and I picked up the phone and said, hello, I said, oh, Gary, I said, Gary Mabbott. I said, yes, uh, it's Bill Nicholson here. And of course, you know, Bill Nicholson was a, a massive legend of the game then. Um, and I said, oh, great to talk to you, Bill. He said, look, Gary, I've seen your names available um, to be on the transfer list. Um, I've watched you play a number of times, Bristol Rovers, and I think you've got the potential to be a Spurs player. Do you want to come and have a chat to us? So I said, I'd love to. So I drove up to London the following day. And I've got to be honest, when I drove through the raw iron gates at the old White Hart Lane, I just knew that's where I wanted to be. Uh, I went in, I met Bill. He took me around the stadium. Then he took me up to Chesson, the training ground. I walked into the canteen there with Bill as the team had finished training, were having their lunch. And you can imagine, I'd walked in there and in front of me was every international star player that Spurs had. You know, every player was, as I say, it was an international. I'd only ever seen them before on match of the day or on top of the pops. You know, it was like, hey. And so he introduced me to, Bill, uh, to Keith Birkinshaw, who was a manager. And to be fair, yeah, I'm not sure Keith knew too much about me. He said, look, Gary, Bill's recommended you. Um, you know, I'm very happy with what he's saying about you. If you, you know, we'd love to sign you. Um, but Gary, look, look around you. There's a lot of quality players in our squad. It may take you two or three years, but we will work on you, build you up as a player, and, uh, and we'll see where we go. And I, I was more than happy to sign. Uh, you know, of course, I had to have a a few different uh, medicals because, of course, I'm a type 1 diabetic. So I was injecting myself four times every day and 10 blood tests every day at that time. So the club basically had to make sure that if I was signing a three-year contract, I'd still be alive after three years to, to see it out. But uh, we got all that done and uh, I passed that. And, yeah, I signed. And then literally within within a week, uh, a couple of injuries in training. We got into pre-season tour to Norway. The first game in Norway, a couple of injuries. Second game in Norway, I was in the team and stayed there for 16 years. So uh, expecting to be on the reserve bench for or whatever for two or three years, I got in the team straight away. And people say, but Gary, how is that possible? You were like a Bristol Rovers player like three weeks earlier. And suddenly, you know, I was in the Spurs first team. My first game in the UK for Spurs was at Wembley in the charity shield against Liverpool. Uh, then I made my debut in the first division against Luton Town at home. Said, Gary, how did you manage that? And I've got no idea. I just knew that when I joined Spurs, I felt totally at home. I've had so many players that I've played alongside or have joined the club who are going to be the next massive superstar. And the expectations and the pressures that are upon them, they never achieve it. For myself, I never felt that. I just felt totally at ease. And I know it's silly to say, but that's how it was. Um, and again, you imagine the first game of the season, we're at home to Luton Town. You scored, you scored. Yeah, well, all the fans in the stadium saying, who the heck is this Gary Mabbott? Never heard of him. You know, we normally buy like million pound players. Gary was a end of season bargain basement sale, £105,000. Um, and then literally in the first five minutes, I made a run in the box from a free kick. Glenn Hoddle put the ball on my head and I scored. And... From that day to this day today, the rapport that I have had 
the Spurs supporters has been absolutely phenomenal. You mentioned some of the names. I mean, Clements, Perriman, Hewton, Roberts, Galvin, Gibson, Miller, Falco, Hoddle, Ardiles, Crooks. Who who really stood out to you when you walked through, you know, the, the, the training ground for the first time? Who was the larger than life character? Well, I mean, in the training ground, of course, I mean, uh, you know, people always ask me about the players I played with. And when I first joined Spurs, um, you know, I was in awe of everybody. Uh, you know, Ray Clements, obviously, growing up, seeing him playing for Liverpool, for England, then joining Spurs. You know, Steve Perriman, the club captain, is such a great reputation. You know, Glenn Hoddle, Ozzy Ardiles coming in off the World Cup. I mean, you know, I followed all this on TV. I was a, I loved football. And so you knew all the stories, you knew all about them. And suddenly I'm there playing with them. And, you know, you're in the same team as these people and training against them. And, you know, again, it was, say, it was just a remarkable time for me. Um, you know, suddenly I think two or three months later, I played my first game for England. Uh, so no, it was just a, an incredible sort of uh, moving from Bristol Rovers to Spurs and suddenly everything you know, just seemed to be going for me. Um, but uh, no, I say we had some fantastic squad of players uh, and, you know, there were a lot of competition for places all the time. Um, I mean, even, yeah, there are only ever 11 happy players at a football club. And that's the 11 that picked on the Saturday. Everybody else is fighting for their place, determined to get in. If you played in the first team, you got appearance fees, appearance bonuses, which was, you know, could double your salary. I mean, when I say double your salary, when I joined Spurs, I was on £18,000 a year. So, uh, you know, <laughs> you can imagine that those bonuses were, uh, were very handy. I was going to ask as well, what, I mean, obviously that bond between you and the fans was was there from day one, but to have such longevity at a club, even back then, was 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 rare, Gary. What what do you put it down to, you know, from both you and the club? Oh, good question. Um, I mean, after my first five years at the club, uh, we won the UEFA Cup in 1984, which was that UEFA season, winning the UEFA Cup. Um, that was just my first trophies I won for Spurs, and I mean, European nights at White Hart Lane were always special occasions. I don't know why, but the atmosphere, we used to wear the all-white kit. Um, and that night at White Hart Lane, when we, uh, the second leg against Anderlecht, we drew one all um, uh, yeah, in the game, uh, which meant it was, a, it was a draw over the two legs. Had to go to penalties. And talking about the supporters, I think that we were, we battled to get back into the game. We managed to equalise and go to penalties. But then, you know, Danny Thomas walked up to take a penalty and Danny Thomas missed. And you could, you could hear the whole crowd and all of us, are, oh, my goodness. And Danny put his head in his hands. And as he turned to walk back, it's a long walk from the uh, penalty spot to the halfway line when you missed a penalty. As he turned to walk, the whole of the stadium started singing, there's only one Danny Thomas all the way till he got back to the halfway line. It was that, in my opinion, that won us the UEFA Cup because every player taking a penalty after that knew that the fans, even if they missed whatever, the fans were still with them. Um, we went up there and, of course, then Tony Parks made the fantastic save and the trophy was ours. But it was that moment, I think, that turned things our way. And it felt like the relationship between crowd and that team during the eighties was was something else. I mean, you must have you must have felt it every week, right? Yes, um, 
I mean, five years after joining Spurs, my contract was up. And uh, the day after the last game of the season, I got phone calls from Kenny Dalglish at Liverpool, uh, Sir Alex Ferguson at United, George Graham at Arsenal, um, Atletico Madrid in Spain and Lyon in France. And I spoke to all the clubs. And to be fair, at that stage, Liverpool were dominating, you know, European football. Uh, they're winning the title virtually every other season, uh, cup competitions, European competitions. And you know, I had long discussions with Kenny about where he wanted me to play. He said, look, Gary, I want to sign three players. Well, you'd play alongside Alan Hansen. Um, the players I want to bring in this summer, I want to bring in you, I want to bring in John Barnes and Peter Beardsley. Uh, so I listened to all he had to say. He was going to double my salary. Um, and yeah, I was looking at, the whole perspective of, you know, my life. And I thought it was tempting, Um, but I'd been at Spurs for five years and I was loving my football. I loved living in London. The rapport and the relationship with the supporters I had was incredible. And then at the end of that season, we just had a fantastic season. I thought we could really build on that and maybe go for the title in the next couple of seasons. So all those things put together, in the end, uh, I chose to I chose to stay at Spurs. But no, I mean, yeah, I spoke to all the clubs. Um, it, it obviously, it was uh, freedom of contract was very much in place then. Uh, it was the end of my contract. I wasn't letting anybody down. It was just the way discussions took place. But I spoke to all the managers that came in for me. Uh, but at the end, uh, say I, I signed and and obviously <laughs> stayed at Spurs. Obviously, would you have ever moved to Arsenal? No. <laughs> was that? I mean, was that... it wasn't. No, I mean, say at that time, you know, United were a big team, yeah, you know, whatever. I mean, the thing was, it was Liverpool that were dominating world football then. Uh, so that was a, uh, yeah, and Kenny Dalglish. In fact, Kenny and I became very, very good friends. When I uh, spoke to Kenny, he understood exactly what I was saying, the reasons why I was staying at Spurs. And in fact, uh, Kenny came on my This Is Your Life program they do on you. And uh, he was a guest on the program. And he came on just to say that. I was the only player he wanted to sign at Liverpool that never signed for him. That's amazing. I feel like you're the Liverpool one and Gaza was always um, Fergie's one at Man United. So it's <laughs> clearly some very coveted players in that, in that Spurs team. Um, I also hope, Gary, that maybe the club sent you along to speak to Harry Kane in the summer based on that rousing uh, reasons to stay at Tottenham um, speech you just gave them. But we perhaps won't go into that right now. I do, however, want to no, move on to the good second idea. question. We'll, we'll leave that one out for the time being. <laughs> um, I'd love to know, and we're moving on to the second question, your all-time favourite Spurs player. It can be someone you played with, it could be someone you've, just look, you've watched, or who, if you had to pick one name, please. Is that a fair question? I mean... It's not a fair back, question, but... You know, the history, you know. I mean, I've been speaking to people who have been telling me the Spurs forward line from 1932. So, I mean, yeah, obviously... Len Dukeman comes up a lot. Ron Burgess comes up a lot. You know, Sir Alf Ramsey. Uh, there are so many players. And of course, uh, the people in their 70s, they also talk about, you know, the, you know, again, the year that I was there with Glenn Hoddle and, uh, you know, Paul Gascoigne, Ozzy Ardiles, Ricky Villa, Ricky's goal at Wembley, Jurgen Klinsmann, David Janola. I mean, I was so lucky. I played with some amazing footballers in my career. And of course, before that, Literally, the whole of the 61 side is just, you know, will always be up there in any Spurs fan's mind. Um, yeah, it was an incredible uh, what they achieved 
yeah, in the, in that period of time, in that era. Um, but if I have to choose one, I would choose Bill Nicholson. Um, Bill to me is everything that yeah exemplifies what Tottenham Hotspur is. Um, his passion, his love of the club. I got to know Bill very well. He was the one that obviously mentioned earlier, brought me to the club. I became very good friends with Bill, with Darkie, his wife. We used to have so many conversations and, you know, Bill just loved the game of football. That's all he wanted to talk about. Uh, and of course, all he wanted to talk about was basically his love of Spurs as well. So uh, purely for that reason, everything that he did for the club, I think I'm going to have to go with Bill Nicholson. The perfect answer. Selfishly, I'd like you to talk a little bit about Jurgen, as he he was. I was eleven when he joined Tottenham, and that was, you know, it felt like this sort of superstar A list striker had joined from a different planet. How how was it when? I mean, that must have been an extraordinary season anyway. But how was it that summer when sort of Jurgen arrived and suddenly the whole team sort of turned on its axis? I think even for us players, it was quite a quite a coup at the time. Um, yeah, Jürgen was being brought in when it all first happened. Everyone's thinking that is he just coming to like see out the end of his career to take a big payday? Uh, but Jürgen was the you know an amazing professional. Um, you know everything he did in training, um, his attitude, what he brought to the club in that era. I think when he first arrived, there was a lot of from, certainly from the opposing fans negativity about about his diving. Um, and Jürgen and I, obviously, I was a captain. When a big player comes in, he becomes your room partner. Yes, uh, everybody, we have to share rooms then. The club couldn't afford to give us like a room each. But they like, share a twin room for you know, two players <laughs> in each room. So anyway, so Jürgen was my uh, room partner when he arrived. And yeah, we spoke a lot about the game, about everything. But he was particularly unhappy about the way the media were portraying him. And uh, we tried to sort of work it look. I said, Jürgen, the best way to try and get over this is that, especially with the, you know, us English people, if you can laugh at yourself in any way, make it that, that you know, people will see the that side of it. And so we tried to think of a way that what we could do. So I initially tried to hire one of those, you know, those massive metal, like diving suits where you open a big mask on it. I tried to hire one of those for his like first press conference. And do you know what? You could not hire one anywhere. So anyway... <laughs> We're coming up to our first away game, where Sheffield Wednesday, and then myself, Jurgen, Eric Torsvet, and uh, and Teddy Sheringham on the table. And um, we're chatting on the table. And he said, "Look, what can we do?" And suddenly, Teddy, I think, was said, "Look, why don't we all just dive?" When Jurgen scores, the whole team meet on the halfway line, and we all just dive. Well, he scored the winning goal. I think we beat Sheffield Wednesday. It was four three on the day. Jurgen scored the winning goal with a fantastic header. All met on the halfway line. And basically, that broke the ice. And Jürgen became one of the most popular overseas players you know, in, in history. So, again, it worked perfectly. Um, yeah, as I said, uh, you know, Jürgen was a fantastic professional. Uh, see him in training, in you know, matches. Uh, he, he gave everything. So, yeah, it was uh, great to have him at the club. And, uh, you know, me, yourself and Jürgen, uh, we had... Uh, our families are the same ages, so we've gone through a lot of things together. And uh, you know, we've uh, we're offered the Spurs job a, a couple of occasions over the in the past. And uh, so, um, yeah, that was sort of uh, a thing when we we've been very close. In fact, I was on the phone to Jurgen last night. So there you go. Oh, really? So it's, you said you were you both been offered the Spurs job at various points. 
I did say that, but you're not going to go into that, are you? <laughs> I mean, I think it would be it would be remiss of me it, not to it, ask at least it, how, it, how it, close. It would be remiss of me not to follow up on that statement. If I just exactly. say that it was not in the last last decade, then you can say that yes, it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't recently. Okay, how how close did you come? Well, we, it was discussed. Uh, it was you know b- between us and this time Jürgen was living in America. He didn't really want. He was both had young families of the same ages. Um, and at the time, uh, we neither felt it was going to be right for uh, for, for either of us, so uh, we didn't further any more discussions. Is is was coaching something that you ruled out fairly early on, Gary? Was it something that you know linked to perhaps how footballs evolved, or what? What was the reason? I mean, you're you're such no, a good talker on no, the game. You're such a not, uh, wasn't ruled out. Management wasn't ruled out. Um, it's just that. When I finished my career, I'd, I'd had like, in total 21 years of playing. Um, and in one conversation I had with Bill Nicholson, uh, we're chatting and I think, you know, we're talking about everything to do with football. I said, is, is there anything that you regret about the, you know, your life in football, Bill? And he said, well, Gary, he said, when I walked up the aisle with my daughter, he said, I looked at my daughter and I wasn't sure I really knew her because even then football was just like all consuming. And I thought, well, when I finished my career in 1998, I had like five or six offers with the management. I spoke to a couple of clubs. I thought, if I go straight back into it now, my first daughter was due to be born in that December. And I thought, do I want to do this? I had an offer from the uh, British government to go over to uh, to work in South Africa for 10 months. My wife was from South Africa, um, working in the townships and going around from uh, Cape Town, Durban, Pretoria, Johannesburg. Uh, doing coaching projects uh, on behalf of the British, you know, the, the FA and the government here. Uh, so I went out and I, I did that. And so, you know, I came back and again, I started doing my coaching badges, um, looking at different things as to where I wanted to move into, did quite a lot of media work. Um, and then I got through to the all stages of doing your badges. I got toward the B, uh, all through my B badge. And then um, five, six years ago, Again, I was having a number of offers you know, that kept coming in to, to go into the game as a manager. I, I woke up one morning and uh, my left leg was just in agony and freezing cold. And so I called my specialist and rushed into hospital and uh, all the arteries had been blocked going to my left leg. It was a diabetic problem. Um, so I rushed into hospital and risk of you know, losing my leg. So I had a seven-hour operation. They managed to save my leg, but I've got a, I've got a scar from my groin down to my foot. Like it had 148 staples in it uh, to, to keep the leg together. Um, but I managed to keep my leg, uh, but it meant that I could no longer run. I can't stand on wet pitches. I can't, you know, do all things like that. Uh, I can't kick a ball ever again. So to be a manager, you have to be out there day in, day out, week in, week out, with the players on the training field, Get to know your players, man manage your players. That's what it's all about to this day and age. Getting the best out of each and every individual player. If you're not out there with them on every occasion, you can't do that. So unfortunately, that was taken away from me. Um, uh, so that was a bit frustrating. Uh, you know, obviously, I still I've been offered a couple of uh, roles as director of football at, uh, at other clubs and things. Um, but yeah, you know, I've, I've been sort of synonymous with Spurs for. Spurs being part of my family now for 39 years. So uh, you know, to go and work for another club, director of football, uh, it'd be quite difficult for me. 
So, um, so no, I, I, my managerial opportunities are, are no longer there. Uh, but say I can have yeah other areas of the game that I'm involved in and can be involved in, but unfortunately not on the uh, management side. Well, um, it's very much Tottenham's gain and the rest of the football world's lost there. Um, I'm going to move on to question three. This is a slightly cheeky one, which I can rephrase. Um, we ask our guests normally to name their favourite terrible Spurs player. Um, there's always one player that, you know, might not be the greatest. There might not be a Mabbott or a Gascoigne or a Harry Kane, but for whatever reason, you keep them very close to your heart. Um, that might be a slightly sensitive one for an ex-player, particularly someone that played at Spurs for <laughs> nearly two decades to answer. I don't want you to have to upset anyone. So I can rephrase it to perhaps asking your favourite kind of cult hero at Tottenham. Is there someone that you just adored? You know, they might not have been the star of the team, but for whatever reason, they were just a real personal favourite of yours. Well, what was, I mean, uh, a player, okay, I mean, he was a, one of the you know, probably biggest names at the time when I was there. But I have to say that, um, you know, obviously I shared a room for a couple of years with Gary Lineker and, uh, you know, Gary was the worst trainer I'd ever played with, I think. Um, you know, it was incredible. In fact, we used to do pre-season training and pre-seasons are horrible. You know, basically you run until you vomit. It's just, they just you take it out of you. The first week of pre-season was just running and, yeah, it was only you get home, you go to bed, get up the following morning, go back in, your legs will feel terrible, off on the runs again to get build up that fitness again. We used to do this run up in Epping Forest, and it was like a, let's do three laps, it's not about one and a half miles a lap. And so we, they'd say go, we'd all start off. Me and Gary Lennon would be at the back. We'd get to the first big tree, and Gary would just go and stand by the tree. So, of course, <laughs> i carry on running. So, yeah, I'd come round. By the time we got round on the second lap, he'd be like, Whenever we've gone past, he'd like keep walking, get, get halfway round tree. He'd be, like, he'd be halfway round. But I came around on the third lap, he'd be at the final big tree and he'd just come out and run in alongside me. Yeah. And so, <laughs> but, but yeah, that was him in training. Yeah. If you're having a, a five aside and you've got a 16 year old YTS trainee, you select him before Gary, you know, before Links. <laughs> because, but every Saturday afternoon, every time we went on the football field, Gary was one of the the best finishers inside the penalty area that I ever played with. Um, incredible. His movement in the box, his knowledge, uh, his intelligence. Uh, he was just an incredible player. And yet, so you couldn't really moan to him about his training because, you know, every weekend he, he, he produced the goals. Um, so, yeah, so he used to frustrate me because, uh, you know, if, if I missed a day's training, I'd be struggling, you know, but... Uh, so no, I mean, uh, so Gary's my room partner, um, and uh, yeah, we, we sort of, you know, had a fantastic relationship during, during our time there. So yeah, so he he was a uh, yeah one of the cult heroes, but he gave me a few frustrations with his uh, with his training antics. Would he get away with it? With the with the coaches sort of let it go because he was the leading goal scorer, etc. Well, they never found out. You know, they didn't actually follow <laughs> us. Yeah, you never got the coaches running behind us. It was just like the you know, guy was in the camera one. But if I did this, no one's going to catch me. So anyway, you know, as far as I'm aware, no one ever ever found out, apart from people watching this podcast. <laughs> I mean, these days it'd all be you know you'd have like monitors and you know Lineker wouldn't get away with any of that nonsense. But uh, he's, he's, he's yeah. lucky he was around back then. Um, yeah, but it, but it was fun. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> and how was 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 uh, was Paul Gascoigne a good trainer? Yeah, no, I mean, you know, Gazza, people ask me about the players I played with, and if I'm being honest, really, I can't choose my favourite player between Glenn Hoddle and Paul Gascoigne, uh, closely followed by Ozzy Ardiles, Jurgen Klinsmann, and David Ginola. <laughs> um, you know, we had some fantastic players, uh, but I mean, Glenn and Gazza, they they could. When you didn't deserve to win a game, they, they could basically turn the game your way. You know, they could pluck a bit of magic out of nowhere and, uh, you know, and create an opportunity or a goal for you. I mean, in my first season, and even you'll probably be surprised to hear this, in my first season at Spurs, I was a middle and midfield player. So I was a box-to-box midfield player. It was like myself at Spurs, um, John Wark at uh, Ipswich, Sue Ness at Liverpool, Robson uh, yeah, United. And my first season at Spurs, I scored 12 goals. I was a joint top goal scorer in the league with Steve Archibald with 12 goals. So there you go, 12 goals in my first season. But virtually every goal I scored, I made a run in the box. Glenn either put it on my head or on my foot when I scored. So, uh, yeah, Glenn was... His range of passing, I've never seen any other player in history that's got the range of passing that Glenn had. I feel like... um... I feel like Glenn Hoddle, I mean, obviously Spurs fans know his genius and, you know, we'll sing his name from the rooftops for all time. But I feel like sometimes Glenn doesn't quite get the respect he deserves as one of the true all-time greats that English football has seen. I don't know if that's something you'd agree with. I think it was difficult because what I think the English game at the time, they still wanted to see people, you know, winning tackles or winning. I mean... I played for England once. Uh, we were playing away. I think it's away in, I think it was in Hungary. And we had a, a three-man midfield of Brian Robson, Sammy Lee from Liverpool and myself. And in front of us, behind the front two, I think were uh, Tony Woodcock and Trevor, uh, Trevor Francis. Glenn was uh, in, the, in the hole between the two told to have no defensive responsibilities. So, Glenn, every time you get the ball, all you got to do is go out there and create, make things happen. We won away from home 3-0 in the European Championships and Glenn totally destroyed the opponents. And yet, after that, he was, again, he, he wasn't using that position again. And I could never understand it. It was an ideal position for him. You know, given that, you know, he didn't have to have any responsibility just go out there and destroy the opponent you, know, you have plenty of players there you know with Brian Robson myself Sammy Lee that could you know win the ball back get it to Glenn and he would just create um, so I think at the time maybe Glenn should have got far more England caps than he did um, but no yeah a true great of the game absolutely absolutely next question Gary your match day rituals what um, when you were playing what was your routine and were you were you very superstitious? Was there something you always had to eat? Was it, you know, left sock before the right sock, special coloured pair of boxers? What, what was it? I always had to do blood tests and injections and things if my blood sugars weren't right before games. So that was probably the most important. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, pre-match meals. Um, yeah, I think that's generally still very much the same today. Uh, you, know, you know, a bit of protein. You couldn't have things like potatoes or chips or anything. It was always a bit of protein, a bit of chicken, a bit of fish. Uh, you know, eggs on toast, um, and you know, very light meal, but you know, three hours before the game, very similar to today. 
Um, as far as the dressing room superstitions, I had no superstitions, but I did have habits. So <clears throat> things like, um, yeah, I was always quite tidy. So, but I always like to have my, yeah, when I got ready and everything done, you messed up your area. I like to have my towel, you know, folded, ready to come in at half time so I could sit down, do my blood test at half time. You know, it was already, it wasn't just all mess all over the place. I always made sure that my towel was folded. Uh, when I walked out, I touched the roof of the door. I came on the pitch. Always used to hard follow the ball towards the goal. But whether I didn't fold my towel, whether I didn't touch the door on the way out, or whether I missed the goal when I walked out on the pitch, it didn't matter to me. You know, I never had, oh my God, I didn't fold my towel. I've got to go back in the dressing room. A lot of players had those superstitions and were, if they hadn't done it, they had to go back in. Otherwise, they were going to have a bad game. Yeah, that in their sure. minds, that's what they thought. Uh, personally, yeah, if I hadn't done it, it didn't bother me in the slightest. And uh, yeah, I can never say that I did anything that, oh, crikey, we won that game and I'll do the same thing again because we won. I never had that. Was there anyone in particular that was really superstitious, like scarily so? Yeah, no, there were a number, but it would be remiss of me to, to talk about it. <laughs> Very polite, Gary. Very polite. Um, did you get nervous? Were you a nervous player before matches? No. As I said, I was, uh, from the day I joined, I just, this is where I wanted to be. It was, it, yeah, yeah, I felt totally at home, totally comfortable. Uh, I, I said before, I can't explain it. I don't know. I never got particularly nervous. I always loved playing at the biggest stadiums, loved playing against the biggest names. No, I, I never, ever felt phased at, at all. So, you know, the answer is no. And uh, that, that's the honest truth, uh, yeah, which is quite strange because, you know, from where, yeah, where I came from, Bristol Rovers, and where I went through the Spurs and then captain for 11 years and different finals, et cetera, et cetera. No, I never felt, uh, you know, nervous uh, I, I love playing the game. Are you a nervous fan watching now? Do you do you get nervous watching Tottenham now? I'm far more nervous as a spectator. Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, you know, I sit there and uh, uh, e- even if we're winning like two nil, and there's one minute of, of injury time left, I'm still nervous. You know, it's like uh, uh, a <laughs> no, but I didn't have that when I was playing. You know, as a uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think as a spectator, um, uh, I'm a. I am more nervous as a spectator than I was as a player. Um, describe to me your emotions, speaking of nerves and excitement and all those wonderful things. Watching, watching the second leg of the Ajax Champions League game a couple of years ago, how, how did you feel through that 90 minutes and when, when Lucas scored the winner right at the end? Well, again, I think uh, for most Spurs fans, it's one of the most incredible moments in the club's history. Uh, all the great things we've achieved, but you know, that night... You know, where we were, uh, how far behind we were, we're never going to pull it back. Uh, we had a number of, you know, the first team players weren't, weren't playing. Um, and how we turned that game around uh, is still incredible. Um, yeah, and uh, it's funny because when I talk to all these people on the phone calls, they always mention about the Champions League final. And, oh, they're so disappointed because after the first minute, bad decision, the penalty, the game was over. I say, but excuse me, it wasn't over. We were like 3-0 down with half an hour to go at Ajax. Yeah, we're 1-0 down with 89 minutes to go. Yeah, that didn't kill the game. Just the game at you know, the Champions League final. I mean, it was one of the most incredible occasions I've been at. The whole day in Madrid, red and white of Liverpool, Spurs, 
everyone mixing together. The atmosphere was absolutely amazing. The football was awful. Um, <laughs> yeah, it just did not live up to anything like what I was expecting. Um, neither team hit anything like the form that we knew they could. Uh, so yeah, the game just sort of petered out, uh, and that to me was the frustrating thing. But the actual day itself, wow! Um, getting to that, being there. Uh, but uh, as far as winning goes, the Man City game and the Ajax game, mm. uh, I think they will always be uh, very highly up there amongst the uh, the favourite games I've ever seen. Next question, Gary. I want to know your all-time favourite Spurs shirt, please. Um, I, I did a bit of research. You're one of the very few players who would have played in kits by uh, Lecoq Sportif, Hummel, Umbro and Pony, um, which, I mean, some of which are very much considered, uh, you know, the most iconic in the club's history. Maybe not so much the Pony ones, but certainly before that. Um, I'm really interested to know your favourite, please. Oh, I wore so many amazing shirts. Um <clears throat> I mean, for me, the cup final one in 91, it wasn't, but it was just, we won the cup and I was the captain lifting the cup. So, you know, that shirt, I think will always have a special place. Uh, but as your favourite shirt, I think, I think about 85 to 87, we had a, it was a, a Hummel shirt, I think it was, with Holston on the front. And we had like arrows going across it and sort of all lined at the top of the, at the, top of the shirt. I don't know mm-hmm. what, I love that kit. Um, yeah, I don't know why it was, but it was just different uh, at the time. It was unusual, and I actually, you know, really enjoyed that kit. So that was one kit I loved. And then I think it was probably ninety-one to ninety-two or three. We had an away kit, a yellow kit that had like all the sort of the thing down the arms. Mm-hmm. It was like, I don't know what it was like. Someone. The child would just like splash paint on the arms and everything. <laughs> and so it was just like nothing on this side of the shirt, just on, just on one arm. Uh, so again, that away kit is a beautiful, bright yellow kit. Uh, and that was another kit that I really loved. So the ones that I mean, I've still got some kits in my loft and things, and uh, they're the ones that I see that I still think, yeah, they actually are my favorites. Um, I was going to ask you about the 91 shirt because. That you know, there's a real story behind that, and that we'd obviously worn Hummel shirts and kits all the way through the season before sort of pitching up for the cup final and looking resplendent in brand new Umbro kits. How how much of a was that like a huge surprise for the players that you were told actually, guys, you're going to be wearing a brand new kit? And was that was it exciting to be wearing something brand new and different? Or you know, players I imagine quite like routine and knowing what they're wearing and all that kind of stuff. So did it throw you a bit? I think there were a few discussions about, you know, we got to the final wearing this and the routines and everything. Um, but even then, we all knew that, you know, obviously sponsors wanted the new kits to be worn, et cetera, et cetera. We shuffled down those paths, but we know why it was being done. Um, and of course, we wore, you know, all the way through the 80s, we had shorts that made you speak in a higher tone. You know, <laughs> they were like so tight and so high. And yet we wore shorts for the 91 Cup final. I think they were like, uh, with the different shorts, I think they were. Uh, with longer shorts down to like just above our knees. And, you know, maybe everyone's voices were a little bit lower during those 90 minutes. E- easier to hear each other on the pitch, perhaps, with the billowy shorts. Um, I wonder if the 91 Cup final might figure 
in your answer to my next question, which is, uh, Gary, I would like to know your Spurs heaven and your Spurs hell. So this could be a match. This could just be a period of time. This could be working under a manager. This could be anything you like, but your heaven and your hell, please. Oh, goodness me. Um, I told you these were going to be tough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think the heaven side of it, I mean, really the obvious answer is um, winning the UEFA Cup, winning the FA Cup as captain. I mean, as a boy, I grew up in a footballing family and, you know, Cup final day was a special day for the whole family. It was a family day. We used to start watching at nine o'clock in the morning with it's a cup final knockout and breakfast with the teams and, you know, traveling to the stadium with the team, lunch with the teams. Yeah, until we watched the whole thing until the captain had lifted the FA Cup. And then myself, my father and brother go to the local football pitch and, and, and play football. Um, and I can remember at the end of the cup, I mean, myself and my brother used to sort of, uh, you know, play Sabutio. And he was like three years older than me. He always used to beat me all the time. Um, and I can remember when the final whistle goes and all the thing calms down a bit, you have to wait like 10, 15 minutes to walk up the steps. You're standing at the bottom of the steps at Wembley to get the trophy. And I can remember standing at the bottom of the steps at Wembley, thinking about <clears throat> this time when, for once, I'd beaten my brother. We played the FA Cup on our lounge carpet with the pitch on the carpet. Unfortunately, it was a ribbed carpet. So the ball went everywhere. But anyway, <laughs> I beat him 2-1. And I can remember running around the house with this tiny little plastic FA Cup held aloft above my head, running around the whole house, the garden, and I stood at the bottom of the steps at Wembley, about to walk up there to receive the actual trophy. And I remember thinking about that moment. And, you know, for me, that sort of was everything for me. That When you walked up the steps, when I got given the trophy, that moment when you turn around and share that second with the Spurs fans in the stadium, all around the world watching, as you lift that trophy the noise that hits you was absolutely incredible. So, I mean, and then people say, what was it like? It's as you'd expect it to be. It was everything I dreamed of as a boy. I'd watched it every year on TV. Um, and there was me actually holding the cup. So I think um, if anybody's seen, the, it's quite an iconic picture of myself lifting the trophy with a Princess Diana and Prince Charles behind me. And if you look at the smile on my face, I think that, uh, that really says it all. That was such a... Such a tumultuous final. I mean, it went to extra time. There was the Gaza incident. There was a penalty. There was, you know, we went behind. We came back. There was also, I mean, everything. There was an own goal winner. You know, there was sort of, for you, redemption after 87. All this stuff, you must have felt so You had to mention 87, didn't you? <laughs> you had all the way through, we tried to avoid it. You had to throw in 87. Oh, no, yes, to the, name was, to was, the uh, tough questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so, to be honest, uh, everything that could go wrong in that first half did go wrong. Uh, it was awful. Um, you know, Gaza, the the injury the, from the free kick where he made the foul, Stuart Pierce scored. I was at the end of the wall. I was grabbed, I think it was by Glow. I was pulled, literally two hands on me, rugby tackle to the floor to pull me out of the way as the ball went past me. The referee didn't see it and didn't give a free kick. We had a perfectly good goal disallowed. Gary Lineker had a penalty saved. I mean, it was all going wrong for us. But, uh, you know, we came out of the second half. We obviously, we turned things around. Paul Stewart got the equaliser. And then, of course, uh, you know, nine took the corner. I'm being marked by Des Walker. So I've, nine's put two hands in the air. I mean, he's coming to the near post to flick on to me at the far post. 
So I've gone in, I've checked out. So I checked out, I've gained a yard on Des Walker. So as the ball's coming, it's coming literally straight for me in the middle of the six-yard box, about six yards out. I'm about to go for the ball, hopefully to head it in. And Des Walker threw himself at the ball and rocketed it into the top corner. Far better than I could have done, I'm sure. But, uh, <laughs> you know, as you say, it was just, um, yeah. And when the final whistle went, as I said, to, to win that trophy, uh, yeah, as captain of the club, um, you know, it, it was great. And uh, that season, Paul Gascoigne was probably the best that we ever saw of him. Uh, in that FA Cup run, uh, he was outstanding. Um, straight from the final, we went down to the hospital in London where he was. I walked into his room carrying the FA Cup and uh, carrying his medal, gave it to him. Um, he said, Mabsy said, as I got put in bed, I just turned and you were just walking up the stairs to lift the trophies. You actually saw me lift the trophy. Uh, but of course, for him, it was uh, yeah, a devastating day. I mean, I'd, I was... I was watching the some of the highlights from the cut round before before we spoke this evening, and every single round he was extraordinary. It was sort of Blackpool, Portsmouth, all Oxford, all these matches. He was he was absolutely fantastic, wasn't he? I mean, maybe the best. You see the goal that put us in front against Oxford. Can't believe you mentioned it. It was. I mean, all the goals in that four two win were spectacular, Gary. But of course, there was one in particular that was particularly fantastic. (laughs) Um, what was what did what did Terry say to you ahead of extra time? Sort of after such a you know such an emotional match, you guys must have been on your knees. But what 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 was said at, at, before extra time kicked off to kind of spur you on? To be honest, I think you know Terry. I mean, we knew that Gazoo had a bad injury, and to be fair, Terry just looked you know basically told us, look, if you carry on playing the way you've been playing, he said, Mabsy, you'll lift the trophy. That's all he said. And we went out and uh, and we lifted the trophy. So, uh, yeah, so it was a say, good day at the office. <laughs> um, I hate to move on to less good days at the office, but your Spurs hell, Gary, what would you say? I think that's quite an easy one. Um, my very last game for Spurs uh, against Southampton in 1998 was just coming up. Uh, I was still playing in the Premier League, just coming up 37 years of age. Had 16 years at the club, 11 years as captain, and um, you know I'm playing my final time coming out at White Hart Lane in front of the supporters. Uh, you know that was a horrible day for me when the final whistle went and going around the stadium. Uh, yeah, I was I was so upset, so welled up. Um, yeah, so I think that that was probably my my worst day um, as a as a Spurs player. People say, well, listening, well, surely it was 1987 with that uh, loss to commentary. No, to be fair, it wasn't. I mean, people say to me that Gary, uh, the only cup final Spurs have ever lost and commentary won it and Spurs had a great team. You should have won it. The almost but not quite team. Absolutely. Uh, but when you play, you give everything. You give 100% for the club, for the fans, for yourself, you know, to the shirt. And that's what I always did. And, uh, you know, if it happened again, I would lift my same left leg, you know, the same hundred times out of a hundred to try and block the cross. It wasn't anything that, you know, there was nothing that I could have done. It's what happened. And I was always a great believer in that. Uh, if people say to me, okay, did you have to have counselling after that? It must have been so terrible for you. Within a day or so, I've forgotten about it. Uh, you've done everything you could. It happened. You can't change it. 
I'm always the one. I'm always the one to believe that uh, you know, if you ever get a setback, use that setback as a stepping stone to move forward. And it's how you handle those setbacks that make you the person that you are. So no, I mean yes, it was a uh, it was awful, terrible day for us. Uh, but hey, that's life. These things happen. Uh, everybody in life, whether it be in their work, in their sport, in their business, in their homes, yeah, we all get curveballs thrown thrown at us. You just have to deal with them. Did you um did you talk to Des Walker much after the ninety one final about his sort of emotions about? Well, the no, not no, not much. I mean, after, after the game, I went over to him and said, "Look, yeah, no, exactly how you feel, Des." And yeah, he was of course they they just lost, same as I was feeling in eighty uh, seven. Um, yeah, he was distraught, uh, but no, obviously I went over to him. Um, but uh, yeah, I was just uh, yeah, those, those things happen. I'm afraid that that's life. You had far more important things to be enjoying at that point. <laughs> um, I we've we've reached the final question, Gary. Um, well, we have a sneaky last question as well, but we'll and we do have a couple of listener oh, okay. questions, which we'll which we'll rapid fire through. But um, we would like to know where you are with Spurs right now. How are you feeling with with Tottenham Hotspur? Where we where we sit at the minute? Obviously, we <laughs> we spoke a bit about Conte yeah. arriving. You know what what do you think the team should be doing this year? What would constitute a good season? Well, crikey, uh, imagine the different uh, answer you'd have got a week ago um, or the week before that or after the first uh, month of the season. Uh, I mean, no, it's been a... All the people I speak to about being a Spurs fan, they say, yeah, it's been such a roller coaster ride over the years and hits and miss and we never know what's going to happen. And, oh, my goodness, these last few months have been uh, very much that way. Um, top of the table off the first three games... I gave such banter to my Arsenal supporting friends and then I should not have done because after the <laughs> result of the Emirates, I had to turn my phone off for 24 hours. Uh, but no, it's been, a, you know, it's been quite amazing what's gone on. Um, and of course, where we are currently, I believe we've got a squad of players that um, and now a manager in place that you know, I've seen in the past has joined clubs and has managed to get teams to produce you know, their best within a short space of time. Uh, he's turned things around in a very short space of time as well. Uh, the clubs he's gone to at certain times. Uh, I feel this group of players, um, they need the confidence and they need the belief in themselves put back into, into the team. And I think uh, Antonio can do that. Uh, so no, I mean, uh, What's happened in the last sort of yeah twenty four hours? Um, I'm delighted with. I think a lot of Spurs fans are now looking forward to the the season, the games coming up, uh, knowing what Conte's achieved. Um, you know, in his time, even in the time in the Premier League, you know, he's he's been a huge success in the Premier League. He's won the title. You know, he's won the FA Cup. Uh, he's won five titles, league titles in nine years. Wherever he's gone. Um, you know, he's a winner, uh, he's a fantastic coach and uh, it'll be very interesting to see. Uh, I think uh, obviously going to be at the game on Thursday. I think every Spurs fan is looking forward to it. Um, and again, you know, we're moving into a, hopefully another new era. Do like a new era. Um, we should we should win the cup this year, right? I feel like we're, we're long over. I mean, we're talking about that glorious day in 91, but... We we deserve another FA Cup, surely. That's that used to be our trophy. We've deserved more than we've achieved over the last few years. Uh, we've been so close, and you know, yet so far, 
Um, I mean, the League Cup this year, we're now in the quarterfinals, home to West Ham. West Ham are doing okay, but I still feel that, yeah, we've got the edge over them at home. Um, you know, our sort of uh, <laughs> Man City have always been team that we always had to come up against and they're not in the competition anymore. So I think the League Cup got a great opportunity. And hey, you know, said, new managers in place. Um, you know, only 10 games of the season have gone. Uh, there's so much more to be played for. So, yeah, I mean, I'm very optimistic about uh, about the rest of the season ahead. I'm going to ask you some listener questions now, quickly, Gary. Um, you can give quick answers, you can give long answers, but we're just going to do some sort of rapid fire questions. Um, question one, which comes from uh, Jack Hussey. Have you ever spoken to John Fashionu about that elbow, the famous elbow? Um, and do you forgive him? No. And no. Uh, would you be open to talking to him at any point in the future? I have no particular desire. I think that's entirely fair enough. From Craig Spencer, how enjoyable was the 94-95 season and what could have made that side title challengers or FA Cup winners, do you think? Difficult questions. I mean, we've had, I mentioned before about the yeah, so the eight, 87 season. I think that was probably the best team that we assembled during my time there is when we had the Ray Clements in goal, start of the season, we had Danny Thomas at right back, Chris Hewton at left back, myself, my best defensive partnership with Richard Goff, we had a five-man midfield, Glenn Hoddle, Ozzy Ardiles, Chris Waddle, Paul Allen and Steve Hodge, Clive Allen up front on his own, scored 49 goals, still a record to this day, saying it was the almost but not quite season. I think we were third in the league, semi-final of the League Cup, final of the FA Cup, but won nothing. That was a year when we really had a great chance to have... Uh, to have won things. And again, over the years since, yeah, the same thing can be said. Uh, but, you know, we didn't actually get to achieve it, uh, which is, I mean, going into every single season, going into every single game that I played, I never thought we were going to lose. I never thought, I always thought we'd win something every season. Also, we win every game we played. Of course you don't, but you always, that's what you always ask you to go into it with. Um, but, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's tough. I mean, Division One, Premier League, it's just tough. And, uh, you know, you've got to have a fantastic squad of players, attitude, determination, uh, have a group of players who make a team rather than just individuals. All those things come into play. And most importantly, you've got to man-manage each and every individual in your squad to get the best out of him every single game that he plays. That, to me, is the most important factor in the game today. Um, next question is a bit of a tough one uh, from Joe Wildman. Did you try and talk Sol Campbell out of moving to Arsenal? <laughs> Did I try and talk him out of it? Um, Did you talk to him at all? Was there any, how, what were the conversations like going into that whole debacle? Okay. Well, Sol was a, yeah, was a good friend of mine. Came through the ranks, um, worked a lot with Sol in, in training, after training. Sol's, wasn't particularly great with his left foot. We worked, he stayed behind after training with me. We worked hard, improving his, and well, yeah, as he went on, his left foot became, you know, as nearly good as his right foot. You know, he was a player that wanted to learn. Um, and of course, you know, he was playing in the team when, you know, in the last year or two that I was there. Fantastic um, player to have in your side. And uh, when it came to leaving the club, um, you know, again, what actual stories, uh, what happened, who, whether it was agents made comments or players or clubs or whatever, you never really know what goes on. All I do know is that I was asked by the chairman at the time, uh, can I have a conversation with Sol? Uh, Sol and I did meet, did meet up. We went through everything that was 
having to be discussed. Um, you know, he had plenty of opportunities to go and play abroad for a lot more money, uh, go up to go up north. Um, but he didn't want to, to do that because his family were based in London, didn't want to move overseas. Uh, the choices that he had were available. Um, you know, and he spoke about it. He spoke about what he wanted to achieve in the game of football. And he knew exactly, you know, that uh, how it would be, you know, going to play for Arsenal. But I think he had his own desires. Everyone talks about different stories about this and that. Um, like I said, I don't think anyone really knows the truth of it or that what happened. When I had discussions with him, he was very determined that he wanted to win things, be in the England team. And he felt that that was going to be better achieved, um, not not being uh, at Spurs at that time. So uh, at that time, there was wasn't anybody else in London. Um, Chelsea were not a team to be reckoned with, uh, nor West Ham, nor um, and so got the opportunity to to join Arsene Wenger at, at to Arsenal. Um, in fact, Arsene Wenger is a, a good friend of mine. Arsene. Arsene should have been a Spurs manager uh, because mm. when I when I, I did a lot of work in the World Cup in South Africa with him, got to know him very well through obviously all our times against each other. Um, the way he talks about the game, the way he wants players to express themselves, how the way games should be played. Yeah, it, it, it was all the Spurs sort of, you know, mannerisms we spoke about. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, when I spoke to, uh, say, uh, I got on very well with Arsene Wenger. Yes, I know. We always say that, yeah, he would always say, oh, I didn't see that and things. But uh, as a football manager, I um, had a lot of respect for him. Um, and obviously, Sol went there and, you know, Sol achieved a lot of things. You know, it's very, it hurt us badly. Uh, I think all Spurs fans, it hurt us badly. Um, you know, I was fully expecting for Spurs fans to, you know, give him, you know, and I agree, we should have booed him if he made a mistake or jeered him at times. Uh, but some of the abuse that was received by a very small minority of supporters, uh, I thought went beyond what is acceptable. And so on that day, I felt a bit, I felt a bit, I know it's awful to say things that happened with the club and going to Arsenal, but it, it didn't, it didn't just feel right for me. I can understand our passions as Spurs fans, but just, you know, most of the thing was, yeah, was good banter, but I think some of the things that were said uh, just were not acceptable. Uh, but yeah, hey, that's the passion of football. That's the passion that yeah gets to people and things. Uh, you have to be careful how far you go with it. Um, within reason, I think uh, yeah, banter is perfectly acceptable. But uh, yeah, as far as I go, did I try and talk him out of it? Yes. Did I succeed? Obviously not. Uh, but he explained his reasons why. And it was not for reasons that everybody says it was for necessarily. So, um, yeah, I mean, Sol, he's a human being. We live in a democracy. He had his rights to do whatever he wanted to do. Uh, I met Sol numerous times since. Yeah, I grew up with him as a player. Uh, I was still talk, talk to Sol. That's a very thorough answer. But having um, said that, your... I know it's not a question that, not an answer that a lot of Spurs fans want to hear because I've answered it before. And, uh, you know, I've actually sat in, auditorium where suddenly I made some comments like that and uh, had a couple of people sort of uh, jeering myself who were Spurs fans. So again, uh, I know it's not what Spurs fans want to hear, but if you, I think everybody knew the full story, uh, they wouldn't quite be as uh, incited as they have been. Tim at Sot Formation on Twitter asks, um, after your stunning performance in the Queen's Nose, were you ever tempted to try your luck in Hollywood like Vinnie Jones? 
Well, uh, Vinnie Jones, has he been in Hollywood? Oh, Craig, yeah, I've never seen a Vinnie Jones film. Tommy uh, <laughs> says to me that, oh, he's a, a big Hollywood actor. And I said, fine. When I see him playing Romeo, Romeo and Juliet, I may go and watch it. <laughs> um, but uh, as far as uh, my acting abilities, you watch The Queen's Nose. Uh, it was a very famous children's programme. I scored a hat-trick. I was absolutely outstanding in the Ma- Man of the Match Award. Uh, so no, I had to direct it, I had to choreograph it, I had to do everything. It took us a whole day to film. Um, but yes, uh, I think if you go on the internet, you can still get the, you know, go and see the clips from the Queen's Nose. And uh, I am very surprised I was not asked to to move to Hollywood afterwards. But for uh, being truthful, maybe not. I mean, in many ways, how do you top that? Like you say, you know, you scored a hat trick. You basically directed yourself. It was, you know, an iconic oh. show. It's where do you go from there? Absolutely, director, choreographed it. You know, starred in it. What can you do? Um, this leads me to my last question, which we we ask everyone, and we on the show talk amongst ourselves around. Um, we would love to receive a culture recommendation from you. So, can you give us a TV show? some music, a film, a book. What have you really enjoyed lately, Gary? Oh, what do I enjoy lately? Um, <laughs> strange one. Okay, I'm a, I'm a big Disney fan. I love Disney. I love The Lion King. It's my, probably my favourite. Um, my favourite place in the world is the Kruger Park in South Africa, uh, where you can basically, you can go and stay there, and basically you're living in the animal's kingdom, the animals don't care whether you're a president or a pauper. Um, so, yeah, I think being somewhere like that, the whole world could be at war. You could be in the Kruger Park and you would not even know it. Uh, so, again, that's one of my favourite places. Uh, so uh, the show is just starting again with Lion King in, in London. Um, so I recommend people to go and see that because I, I loved it. From a cultural aspect, well, I'm not sure the Lion King makes a cultural aspect. Uh, but uh, uh, went with my uh, daughter a couple of years ago to the Natural History Museum, and that's always a place to. Every time I go there, I find something new to that. You know, you get sort of wow, you know, in, incredible. Um, so there's so many places. I mean, we're lucky being based in and around London here. Uh, there's so many things here. But my wife's from South Africa, and I tell all her family that they always think that you know. United Kingdom's like this tiny little dot and, you know, it's all just built up and, yeah, you, know, you explain to them all the beautiful areas. I mean, you go around the country, I've been lucky, I've been able to stay everywhere in the country from Devon to Cornwall to Dorset to up in the Lake District, up in Scotland. I mean, this country's got everything. If only you could guarantee the weather. Uh, but no, <laughs> travelling around this country, all different areas of this country, York, I love York. Uh, there's three parts of the, the country, I think, so... If anybody's got anything to do, if they've got time to go and explore this country, that's what I would advise them to do. Um, I'm also very glad you said the Natural History Museum because I'm taking my daughter there tomorrow for her third birthday. So that well, feels there like a nice, uh, a, nice way to, will, sure. a, a nice way to wrap things up. Gary, that was such a privilege. Um, thank you for doing this with us and thank you for everything you continue to do for our club and have done. As I said before, Tottenham Hotspur is incredibly fortunate to have you representing it so wonderfully. Um, And we've been equally fortunate to have you with us. So thank you ever so much. We really appreciate it. It's a pleasure and uh, thank you for having me.
Well, that wasn't much good, was it? Why didn't Gary Mabbott turn up? That's what I want to know. Gary Mabbott? I suppose he was the other player, was he? Yes, that's right. Oh, sure. Look, listen, if Gary Mabbott turned up here, I'll give you a fiver. Somebody taking my name in vain. You must be Harmony. <laughs> yes, and Tom. And this is Tom. Hello, Tom. Pleased to meet you. Not a talkative type, eh? No. But you're Gary Mabbott. And you're short of a fiver. I'll take American Express. <laughs> OK, Tom, we're going to plan our tactics. Right, here's what we do. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.